You're listening to audio from Cibolo Creek Community Church. To learn more, visit CiboloCreek.com. And today I want to I want to continue the discussion. What difference does it make that Christ resurrected from the dead? So let, let's start with some questions that aren't unique to me. Uh, another preacher asked these questions. I thought they were worded so well, I just decided to borrow them. Andy Stanley asked this question. How did a first century cult, and that's how Christianity was originally viewed. It was a cult. It was this small group of people who believed these weird things and did some strange stuff. So how did a first century cult that was birthed in the armpit of the Roman Empire, because that's what Judea was. If you were a Roman soldier and you were assigned to Judea, you're like, oh, what did I do so bad, right? Because it was the armpit of the Roman Empire whose leader, this cult, whose leader was rejected by his own people. I mean, where did the 12 disciples go when Christ was in the garden and the Romans show up? (laughs) They scrammed. They didn't want anything to do with them. His own people rejected him and he was crucified. How did this cult survive and thrive? Now watch this. In the face of violent, organized, state-funded resistance because Rome worked overtime to stamp out the message of Christ and the claims of Christianity. The other, other way to ask that question, Andy Stanley says this, how did a Nazarene sect eventually become embraced by the very empire that for 300 years sought to extinguish it? How did that happen? So let's talk a little bit about history. How many of you liked history when you were in school? Five of you, great. <laughs> you know, I, I liked history I just hated school. I mean, I was, that's a short deal. Well, I didn't really hate school. I liked hanging out with my friends. I loved lunch. I loved gym class. That's what we called it back then. And I loved art. It was all the other classes I wasn't really fond of. And it wasn't about I didn't like learning. I didn't like having to be tested, like remembering all the stuff. So yeah, tell me all you want about history. Just don't make me regurgitate dates and times and places. I'm sorry, I'm just, this is cathartic for me. Okay, (laughs) let's talk a little bit about history. The first question is this, who crucified Jesus? Now our inclination is to say it was the Jews, but the Jews didn't crucify Jesus. The Jews called for the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the Jews wanted Jesus crucified. I mean, crucify him, crucify him. The, the crowd of Jewish people chanted with the hopes of seeing Jesus executed. But, but you see, the Jews lived in subservience to the Roman Empire. And while they were allowed a certain expression of like Jewish society, and they had some Jewish laws, primarily religious laws, that they were allowed to observe, there were many laws that the Jews could not practice because they did not have the authority. And one of those laws that the Jews were not allowed to execute criminals. So that's why when Jesus is on trial, what was the original charge against him? Was blasphemy that he claimed to be God. 
But when they show up to Pilate for the, you know, one of the many trials that Jesus went through, they're trying the whole blasphemy accusation. And Pilate's like, I don't care about that. As a Roman, believe what you want about him. It's not until they start saying, oh, but wait, wait, wait a second. He also said that he was the king of the Jews. Now that's a problem. Because now Jesus is guilty according to Roman law. He's guilty of treason because there was only one king and that was the emperor. And that led to his crucifixion. What did the sign read above Jesus's head on the cross? This is the king of the Jews. Pilate didn't want them to say that, but then what they did ended up saying is, oh, no, no, he did say that, so he's guilty of treason. And so what the Romans decided to do is we'll crucify him, we'll put the sign above his head, because we want everyone to understand is that you go running around saying you're the king other than being the emperor, this is what we do to you, we crucify you, gruesomely. As an example, that you don't talk about being a king. Rome was showing the Jewish people that you don't, you don't compete against the emperor. So that's interesting history that Rome played such an integral part in the crucifixion of Jesus. Let's talk about where were the disciples immediately following the crucifixion? Well, we read in the gospel accounts that they were hiding in a room behind locked doors, absolutely petrified that either the Jewish crowd or the Roman authorities would come looking for them next to crucify or to kill them as a way of stamping out all this talk about Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being a king. Rome didn't want that sort of upheaval in their Roman society. And so the disciples were absolutely petrified, hiding in fear. So we move into the book of Acts, which is a record of like the early church. And what is it that was so prevalent in the first century that caused Christians to move to lots of different places throughout the world? It was typically persecution. As persecution started, they would move to side to, you know, protect their lives. And who was doing the persecution? Rome. Rome wanted to stamp out this whole talk about this Jesus guy. It was, it was distracting and it was, it was um, confusing to their, um, their whole society. So it's interesting in Rome, what was at the center or one of the central pieces of, of, of Rome? It was a Colosseum was a place of entertainment. You could go there and watch gladiators fight. You could go there and watch chariot races. But you know what the real spectacle at the Colosseum was? The lions and the tigers and the bears eating people. Sounds like a good time, right? Who were the people? The people were Christians. Why? Because Rome hated Christians. And they're just trying to stamp them out. And so everything that you see about Rome is they could not stand Christians for the things that they believed. And so we have a long history from like the first century through the fourth century of some awful things done to Christians by Rome. And one particular emperor was very nasty, uh, Nero. Or Nero, sounded like I said Nero. Nero was one of the emperors. He loved to pick on Christians. One of the things that he would do is he would have Christians dipped in tar, impaled on a stake, and raised up and lit on fire to light his parties. 
That's sort of like the spirit of how things were in Rome when it came to Christians, and it wasn't good. This happens for three centuries. Now, why was this such a big deal? Well, because Rome was a polytheistic society. It worshiped many gods. In fact, it had sort of its favorite gods. It had the pantheon of gods, and these were the ones who were you know, highly worshiped in Roman society. And the Christians are out there talking about one God. And that was particularly problematic is because the emperors were deified. They were considered to be gods. And this was a struggle with Christians who go, no, the, the emperor can't be God. There's only one God and he's divine and he's not human. And then there were sacrifices that were made to the emperors and to the gods and this was a clash with Christian beliefs about idolatry. And so they just lived in this tension. And as Christianity advanced throughout the first, the second, and third, and fourth century, it created huge problems in Roman society. And they lived in conflict. And so it was not a pretty scene. Do you follow all of that? Okay, now fast forward. 350 years from the crucifixion of Jesus. We come to February the 27th, 380 AD. And an emperor named Theodosius, number one, he, he pronounced the Edict of Thessalonica. So from your history class, you remember what that was? No, this was in February 27th, 380 AD. This is so 33 AD is the approximate date when Christ died. So some 350 years later, Theodosius is pronouncing the Edict of Thessalonica that recognizes Christianity as the number one and sole religion of Rome. In fact, he not only raised up Christianity as the sole religion that would be honored in the Roman society, but the entire pantheon of gods was dismissed, destroyed, and unfunded. There was not allowed to be any more worship of other gods, just the one God. Isn't that interesting? And then if you go to Rome today, you'll see a whole lot of crosses. They're everywhere. In fact, the Caesar's entrance into the Colosseum, there's a huge cross above the door where the, Caesar, the, the emperor would go in. But you know what? The crosses in the contemporary Roman, what you can go and visit... They're not, they're not pictures of crucifixion. Roman crosses in Rome these days stand for the loving sacrifice of Jesus for humanity. Okay, so think about that. What was happening with Christianity in Rome at the time of Jesus and his life on earth and his crucifixion, this enormous amount of animosity and hatred and um, rejection, and then just 350 years later, it is the primary and only religion of Rome. So something happened. Something created all of that. Something led to all of that. So there's an interesting um, historian, his name's Bart Ehrman. He's an atheist. He's a New Testament scholar, but he doesn't believe in God and Jesus like perhaps you and I might profess. He writes, he writes this, Christianity not only took over an empire, it radically altered the lives of those living in it. It was a revolution that affected government practices, 
legislation, art, literature, music, philosophy, and even on a more fundamental level, the very understanding billions of people had about what it meant to be human. You see, before Christianity took root in the first century world, human beings primarily saw them in two situations. There was royalty and the elite, and there were peasants, and they were generally regarded as not being real human. They were like creatures. And it was the the discussion of salvation and worth and value and love and meaning that was perpetuated by the message of the gospel that human beings started to see themselves as having value and worth and it changed society. Ehrman continues, however, one evaluates the merit of the case about like what you believe about Jesus. No one, this is an atheist historian, no one can deny it was the most monumental cultural transformation our world has ever seen. So I asked the question, what happened? What happened for over 300 years? Christianity not only survives in the face of immense persecution, but it thrives in turning an entire empire upside down. An empire that was opposed to it for three centuries. What happened? Not to mention, you want to know like a really interesting little tidbit? This is free. I mean, if you want to put something in the offering plate, that'd be great. Um, But this is free. Three centuries, Christianity not only survives, but it thrives. You ready? No, you ready? You ready? Without a Bible. There's no Bible. There was a couple of letters circulating throughout the first century world among churches that were like hundreds of miles away from each other, but nobody was turning in their Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's very important, and here's why. Because Christianity, the primary catalyst of Christianity is not a book, it's an event. And that event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some people saw it with their own eyes. They had watched Jesus crucified gruesome way to die and they watched it with their own eyes they heard the misery with their own ears they probably smelled the gruesomeness of a roman crucifixion they watched jesus's body taken off the cross carried away and put into a tomb that had been loaned to his family they came early sunday morning to embalm the body correctly not expecting a resurrection, and then everything changed. And for the next three centuries, the disciples of Jesus carry on the message, you're not going to believe this, but the Jesus who died, we saw him with our own eyes, and he was alive again. And the message of Jesus and the message of love permeates an entire empire and turns it upside down. Did you follow that? Okay, so that's not biblical story. That's called history. It happened. There's more credible sources affirming the message of the history of Christianity than most all other ancient history that you and I accept as true and believable. 
It's an amazing testimony to the reliability of our faith as Christians. So we have a lot that we believe in that has the foundation based on reason and fact in history. And it's an amazing, amazing testimony to what it is that we believe. So let me ask you this question. What difference does it make? So what? So what? Well, that so what is enormous. And today I just want to take the time and we're going to move kind of quickly. I want to show you a couple of reasons why the resurrection makes such a big difference. You ready? Okay, the first one is this. Because Christ resurrected from the dead, the promise to us as followers of Jesus who have placed our faith in Christ and the work that he did on the cross is that there's no more condemnation. So that infers something. That outside of Jesus Christ, you and I as sinners, we live in condemnation. It's just a matter of time until we face a living, holy, righteous God and give an account of our lives where we will be found guilty as sinners and we will be condemned, separated from him for eternity. But when we place our faith in a risen savior, there's no more condemnation. I love this verse, Romans chapter eight, verse one. Therefore, Paul's talking about all these things from chapters one through seven of Romans. He says, therefore, here's the implication. There is now no condemnation for those who are where? It's right there. Who are in Christ, who are in a relationship with Jesus, who put their faith and come to believe that what Jesus did on the cross was for them. That when he rose from the dead, all the promises he made, suddenly they have validity. They are true. They are something that you can bank on. There's no more condemnation. Okay, think about this for a second. Some of you, you need to hear this. You've been a Christian for years and you live in the fear of condemnation. I mean, I've talked with people and here's, here's, here's their fear. They're gonna die. They're gonna go to heaven. Their name's gonna be called, you know, and they're up here before the big guy. And for some reason, this is the image to people. There's this enormous celestial size screen, TV, and it's gonna replay all the bad things that you did in your life. Oh, no, no, see, there isn't. There's no more condemnation. It's not even a risk. You live uncondemned when you live as a Christian. We gotta move on. We gotta go through these facts. Um, this is a great time for your battery and your clicker to, to fail. I guess that's what's happening. Is the computer froze? May we move to the next slide, please? <laughs> Anybody up there? There we go. Okay. Phew. I was getting nervous. I was like, uh. okay. Uh, peace with God. No more condemnation, but now what you have is peace with God. Okay, again, what does it infer? That outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have what the Bible calls enmity between us and God, hatred. Because God can't stand sin. 
He loves us, but he can't stand sin, and that's a problem. And so now he says there's no more condemnation. Now what you have is peace with God. Look at this, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, justified is a legal term, since you've been declared righteous by the judge, who's God, you've been declared righteous, how? Through faith, that faith that you put in Christ, we have peace with God. We don't have to be afraid of him anymore. We don't have to be afraid of answering for our sin anymore. We have peace with God. I just love peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom? I love this line. We've gained access. What? Access to God. He's now our heavenly father. Access by faith into uh, this grace in which we now stand. Meaning that as a Christian, I stand in this position where Christ envelops my life and all I know is grace. Grace is just kindness, eternal kindness. This is the position of your life as a Christian is I stand in grace. Next one. We're adopted as God's sons and daughters. Because of the resurrection, Jesus alive again, I put my faith in him. I am now invited to an experience of being adopted by the living God to become one of his sons and daughters. Look at this, John tells us in chapter one, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, believed in who Jesus was, he gave them the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision of a husband's will. No, they they were born of God. God is, this is rebirth. This is what born again is about. I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm reborn and now I'm adopted into God's family as his son or his daughter. I mean, just sit in that for a second. You, a dearly loved child of God, like you're his favorite son, you're his favorite daughter, and he's, we're all his favorites. I loved it one time I heard this, that God has a picture of you on his refrigerator. Because <laughs> he loves you. Isn't that amazing? Okay, here's one. We're going to talk about this after serving Sunday. We're going to start a new series, series on the Holy Spirit. You're indwelled by the, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live inside of you. Look at these passages of scripture. If you love me, keep my commands, Christ says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate, another person who like lives in your defense, somebody who will help and support you, an advocate to help you and to be with you. So this advocate that Jesus is gonna ask the Father for, he does at least two things. He helps you with what? Life. And he will be with you, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because they don't have a relationship with Jesus because it is neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, you Christians, you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Did you know that? That the spirit of God lives in you when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, you never go anywhere. You never go through anything. That God's not with you. He's in you. 
Look at this, all this Ephesians chapter one. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of the gospel, the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you put your faith in Jesus, you were marked in him. You were designated as belonging to him. You were marked with a seal. Interesting history here. The king, the emperor, he would wear a ring and on that ring would be his seal. It was his image. Whenever the emperor sent a letter uh, or a scroll from one place to the next, he would, they would uh, take some wax from a candle and they'd dip it on the, where the folds came together. And then the king would put his seal in that wax. And if that wax seal was broken between his sending it and the recipient receiving it, whoever delivered it would die. So this is the word here. This is the cultural symbolism. You were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, God's going to deliver on all the promises he's made in you because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, guaranteeing that they will all come true. Amen. So what? Oh my gosh, you think about that. Thank you. Thank you. Where's Marcy? Marcy should be here today. No more condemnation. Peace with God. Adopted as God's child. Indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Freedom from sin. Okay, stop and think about it. Outside of Christ, we are described as being shackled enslaved to sin. There's nothing in our own strength or power that we could ever do to break free of the power of sin in our life. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ through the work of the cross and the, certainly the work of the redemption of, of uh, the resurrection, that power of sin was rendered powerless. I now have a capacity through God's strength in me to live a life victorious over the grip of sin in my life. Great passage, Romans chapter six. For if we've been united with him in a death like his through faith, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old sinful self, it was crucified Christ took on our sin. We were crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we, we should no longer be slaves to sin. It's a hard truth to reckon with, but all the sin that I'm guilty of is my choice nowadays. I don't have to serve it. I choose to. Christ has given me all of the power, all the resources, the indwelling Holy Spirit, all that I need to live victorious over the sin that grips my life. You should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In the same way, Paul writes, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul Wilson, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Paul, you don't have to live that way anymore. Do not offer any of your uh, part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been 
brought from death to life and to offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Look at this. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but you're under grace. And you know what, folks? That's just a few of the things that are benefits to our lives as Christians because of the resurrection. But those are some pretty big deals. Now the challenge is, now the invitation is, live your life as if you no longer live condemned. Live your life as if you're at peace with God. Live your life as that sin no longer controls you. Live your life with the reality that the spirit of God lives inside of you. It's an amazing list. What difference does it all make? Well, let me bring it down to one word. One of the most often repeated phrases of Jesus was this, fear not. Or in the way we say it, don't be afraid. Over and over and over again, Jesus says to his disciples, guys, don't be afraid. Quit your worrying. Let go of the stress because stress is just an expression of fear. Quit fighting for control over the people in your life and the circumstances of your life. Would you just relax? Quit living in such fear. Well, why do you think God has so much to say about not living in fear? Because Christ resurrected from the dead. It makes an enormous difference in how we go about living our lives. And so there's this word in the Bible. We see it a bunch in the New Testament. We also see it in the Old Testament. New Testament, it becomes very, very uh, specific. And that is the word hope. Now, we think of hope as wishes. I hope I win the lottery. Okay, I'd like to, I wish I could win. That's not how hope is used in the Bible. Hope in the Bible is about confidence. It's about courage. It's about an assurance. Oh, I know that this is gonna happen. I believe that this is completely possible. It's a courageous anticipation, like a Christian lives with hope, like I'm just waiting for God to come through with the promises that he's made. If you have your Bibles with me, we, we had a lot of verses today, but this is the one I'd like you to turn with me if you have your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one, if you have your Bible. And one of the reasons I'd love for you to turn there is because if you're not too obsessive compulsive, I'd love to encourage you to underline this passage of scripture. You got that right. If you're obsessive compulsive, you would never underline your Bible. Right? I know. And, do, and whatever you do, if you borrow a book from me, do not turn the page down on the corner. Can we have that understanding? Okay, thanks. Okay, listen to this. First Peter chapter one. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us what? New birth. I love this. Listen to this. Into a living hope. Like this is a hope that has life to it. 
It's a dynamic kind of hope. It's a relevant, contemporary, like every day that we live kind of hope, a living hope through what? It's right there. This living hope is made available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish, can never spoil, cannot fade, and it's kept in heaven with your name on it. It's reserved for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power. Did you hear that? You're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. Like all those promises that Jesus has made to us until like all of those are realized and we're standing in heaven. And it's like, wow, this place is for real. Now I'm like completely safe. I'm in the presence of my savior, Jesus. He says, that's all reserved for you. And you can live every day of your life with a confident and courageous hope that all of that's for you. If there should be anything that, that um, describes the, the life of a Christian, if there's any kind of portrayal that ought to be common among Christians, you ready? These are two words that ought to describe us. Confidence and courage. Not arrogance, not bravado, but confidence. I, I'm a child of God. I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jesus resurrected from the dead and I belong to him and courage. All of those really scary situations in life, we ought to be able to move into our jobs and, and our relationships and health challenges. We ought to move into them with courage. Like, wonder what God's up to in my life. That's what hope looks like. Okay, now we're going to fly because it's time but i just want you to see a theme this is all through the bible about fear fear not why because i'm with you remember the spirit he's with you and in you be not dismayed don't run around like oh what's happened be not dismayed because i'm your god i'll strengthen you i'll help you i'll uphold you with my righteous right hand amazing for he said, I'll never leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I don't care what you do. I'm not going to bail on you. Why? Because there's no more condemnation. I'll never forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord's my helper. I'll not fear. What could person, any person on earth do to me? They can't do anything. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, I'm that close. I'll fear no evil for why you are with me. Your rod and your staff as the good shepherd that you are. They, they bring me comfort knowing that you are, you are committed to providing for me and protecting me. Deuteronomy 31, be strong. People of faith, be strong, be courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of, of your enemies for it is the Lord, your God who goes with you. He'll not leave you. He'll not forsake you. John chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, peace, I leave with you my peace. I'm giving it to you. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be all worked up in turmoil. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
What should I be afraid of? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And the answer is nobody, nothing. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. I don't care if the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, through the mountains tremble at its swelling. I will not be afraid. Why? Because God is my ever-present help. Psalm 55, cast your burden, all those things that are weighing you down. Cast it upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He'll never allow the righteous to be shaken. Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shelter of the most high. Remember that, that grace in which I now stand is like God is an umbrella. I live in the shelter of the most high, will abide in the shadow of the almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I'll trust. That's how I go through about my life. Okay, whatever. Jeez, I don't know what to do for you guys. That's amazing stuff. Look at this. I, I didn't know any other way to put it. We have no reason to fear anything or anybody as the sons and the daughters of a savior king who rose from the dead, establishing himself more powerful than any force in our world. Now listen to me. Jesus said, I will build my church. Not a building, a community of people who believed in the power of the resurrection and without fear or intimidation, they went throughout their world and they told other people about Jesus. And we're living in a time right now where people like to tell us that the church is dying. In fact, many of them are saying the church is dying and the pandemic of the last two years just hastened it to its demise. Who decides that? You decide that. I decide that. We decide what becomes of the church that Jesus said he would build. We decide how important the church is going to be. We decide the power of the church in believing a resurrected Savior who lives in us through the power of his Holy Spirit. So let's not be afraid. Let's be a people who are confident and courageous. Let's live as though the truth of Jesus and his resurrection is in fact boiling up inside of us as a living hope, a dynamic reality that we can trust Jesus Folks, you have to understand that what you believe about Jesus has more credibility, more history, more fact, more rationale for what you believe in Jesus who resurrected from the dead than any, any ideology that exists these days. Stop living in fear. Don't be intimidated for your faith. Don't be made to feel intellectually inferior because of what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because what you believe is the truth, the truth of God's eternal witness to the world. Everything else, everything else is a lie. And right now we are living in a time where people are ramrodding down our throats 
all sorts of lies and expecting us to believe it, expecting us to go along to get along. And I'd say, stop it. Stand up for your church. Stand up for your Christ. Stand up to be a Christian because that is the life that we're invited to live as men and women who know a resurrected Savior King who lives inside of us. Does that make sense? We don't have to be arrogant. We don't have to be mean and insensitive. We don't have to be um, thoughtless. But we don't have to be intimidated. We have every reason in the world to believe confidently and courageously of what God has done on our behalf through the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm inviting us to be a church in town who lives like we believe it. Make sense? Thanks for listening. There's more I want to say. <laughs> Maybe some other time. So next Sunday's what? What time are we going to be here? With our serving shoes on. We're going to go out and we're going to show the love of Christ to our community. And then the next Sunday, we're going to come back. We're going to start a new series called Ghost Stories. <laughs> it's going to be fun. One last thing before I pray for you and let you go. If you're new to our church, like just in the last few weeks, immediately following the service today, I and another member of our staff, we're going to be available over in that corner. Just to greet you, go pick up your kids, bring them back. We've got some snacks for the kids. We've got games for your teenager if they um, are going to join you. And just we're just going to take a few minutes, answer any questions you might have about our church tell you a little bit about some things that we're up to. And you go, oh, preacher, I wish I'd known this. I, I, got, a, I got a solution for you. We're gonna do this through the whole month of May, except for next Sunday, Serving Sunday. Just love to meet some new folks who are coming to our church. Fair enough? You guys are awesome. Let me ask you to stand together. Let's pray. God, please open our eyes. Open our ears to see and to believe what the early disciples saw with their own eyes. Christ crucified, risen from the dead, alive again. I pray, Father, that this church, every Christian in it, will live as though we serve a risen Savior, that we live with a living hope that we are confident and courageous about the things that we believe and we're not to be intimidated by our world at all. But as loving messengers and ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would boldly tell our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, our spouses about the Jesus that we know. Father, thank you for your grace toward us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. All right, gang, have a great week.